Lord Jesus, thank you that your word speaks to us in, in and out of season, that there is something ancient, true for those long ago that heard it for the first time that is still true for us today, and that there is something for our hearts to receive and to be instructed by and built up in the faith. Would you grant us this morning by your spirit, would you grant us the grace needed to in our discipleship to work honestly, to work humbly, and to work to honor you. We pray these things in your mighty name. Amen. It's a rags to riches story worthy of Hallmark. Talking about the story of Richard Montañez. He immigrated from Mexico to Southern California, and like many immigrants, did not have much in the way of useful skills, and definitely didn't have great use of the English language. So he took the only job he could get, which was as a janitor in the Frito-Lay factory. As he was getting ready to go to that job, his father and his grandfather sat him down and gave him a pep talk about the opportunity. They told him, when you mop that floor, you let people know that a Montañez mopped it. Well, he took the lesson to heart. He worked hard, extremely hard, and he made the most of every opportunity that came his way. Uh, one point along the way, the CEO made a, uh, a message to go out to the entire company, challenging all his employees to, no matter what your position in the company, think like a CEO. We need your good ideas to have the next great innovation. Well, at this point, Richard had come up with an idea. He'd actually gone on a couple of deliveries with drivers, and he noticed that in the Hispanic grocery stores that the Cheetos were not getting the prime slot on the shelf. They were down with the cleaning supplies. No one wanted them. They were warmed up with the corn chips and all the rest of the popular snacks. So he thought there was an opportunity. So in a bold step, he picked up the phone, and in broken English, he pitched his idea directly to the CEO. He said he was more than a little bit shocked that he wasn't just laughed off the phone, and even more shocked when he was told, we want to hear your presentation in our boardroom in two weeks. Richard had no business experience, no idea how to do anything like this. I'd never done anything like this before, but he knew an opportunity when he saw it. So he went to the library, started getting books on business presentations. He got some uh, blank Cheetos without any seasoning, and he made up his own chili uh, seasoning to go on top of them. He, he packaged the thing. He even drew logos and things to go along with it. And two weeks later, he walked into that executive suite and gave his presentation. He said, I'll never forget the moment when the CEO of the entire company told him, Mr. Montañez, you can put that mop away. You're coming with us. Richard Montañez is now the president of uh, minority marketing for all of PepsiCo. He's uh, as great a rags-to-riches success story as you will find in the United States. I, I don't know about you, when I hear a story like that, something in me stirs. There's something good about somebody taking an opportunity, really pursuing it 
making the most of what they, they have and, and uh, achieving success as a result. And yet, as we hear stories like that, let's recognize we come from a context. We're Americans. And that means that there are certain things of our culture that we need to be careful about to make sure that they actually line up with what the Bible says we should think about work. When you hear a story like that, you have a temptation for at least two ditches. One is what's called workism. That's the idea that you are what you do. And so pretty soon, work is all you do. It's a, an amazing phenomenon. Uh, an article recently came out by a guy named Derek Thompson entitled, Workism is Making Americans Miserable. It's about high-income, white-collar workers when looked at against previous generations, it turns out, even though they're wealthier than they've ever been, they are more miserable than they've ever been. They're working longer hours. They have worse physical and mental health. Their families are suffering. And frankly, they are just not enjoying life like their predecessors decades ago. It's because of workism, this idea that you are what you do. And once you bought into it, you just do more and more and more and more until there's no room left for your family, no room left for any sort of rest, and certainly not any room left for church if you're a Christian. On the other side of that road, the other ditch would be that of idealism. The idealism has been fed to us by Disney movies since we were kids, if you're my age. It's the idea that there's this perfect purpose for your life that will be expressed in what you do. And unless you find that exact thing, then you will be miserable. So don't give up and don't let anyone tell you different until you find it. Idealism results in people turning down perfectly good jobs, being unwilling to take jobs that they think are beneath them, and in some cases, not working at all. They just feel entitled to a life with all the comforts and things that they want without any work. Now, let's realize we're living in a society with an increasingly large social safety net that makes it easier and easier for people to live the idealism sort of work lifestyle. It's a very different way than what the Bible talks about work. As Christians, we are meant to put our faith to work. God made us to work, to support ourselves, and to glorify God through humble honest, hard work. If we do that, then we can honor our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That, that's the message that Paul wrote to a church 2,000 years ago, the Thessalonians. It's a message we still need to hear today because we too need to learn to put our faith to work. Uh, we'll move through that. We'll see that in three sections, three lessons that come straight from this text and into our lives. First, in verses 10 through 12, we'll see the command to contribute with humble, hard work. The command to contribute with humble, hard work. Second, in verses 7 through 9, we'll see the example to emulate of humble, hard work. The example to emulate of humble, hard work. And then third, in verses 6 and 13 through 15, we'll see the warning we must give to produce humble, hard work. The, the warning we must give to produce humble, hard work. 
Now, you may have noticed that those verses are not, sections are not in order, and that is because this passage has a, a very Eastern flavor to it. It starts and ends in the same place, and that can make for a very repetitive sermon if I go sequentially. So we're going to start with the juicy middle in between those two uh, slices of bread, verses 10 through 12, the command to contribute with humble, hard work. Read with me in verse 10. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Paul says very plainly that Christians must contribute to their own sustaining of their lives by working. He uses a, a very simple proverb. Apparently it was something that he had taught them already. We don't know much about that discipleship that he had with the Thessalonian church, but little glimpses of it, like this one, a very pithy proverb telling us that you need to work. It's as simple as it comes. If you don't work, you don't eat. Now, just to prove how simple this is, even my three-year-old son, Theo, understands it. Uh, the other day, I was on my way out to a church function, and Theo grabbed hold of my leg and he looked up at me with those big eyes and a pouty lip, and he said, Daddy, I don't want you to go to work. And I looked down at him, I said, Theo, do you like chocolate granola bars? <laughs> he said, yes. I said, Theo, the Bible says that if you don't work, you don't eat. Do you want more chocolate granola bars? <laughs> yes. Now, I don't think he was fully convinced in that one lesson. But the other day I did ask him, Theo, if you don't work, and he said, you don't eat. So I think he's getting it. <laughs> so why does Paul take the time to spell out something so simple? Well, it's because there were among the Thessalonians a group of people that were unwilling to work. And because they weren't busy with good work, instead they became busy bodies. Look in verse 11. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. Not busy at work, but busy bodies. There's a word play going on in the Greek that is still preserved pretty well in the English. Uh, the idea is that these people that don't have any business to be about themselves instead buzz their way into other people's business. Instead of producing, they become pests. Paul says to them, in effect, you need to get a job. He says it very directly. He says it kindly, but, but very directly. We say this to you as a command. It's uh, both an exhortation and a command that they must work. Now, th there's a reason why Paul would say this. It's not just some self-righteous rule he came up with because Paul's a big baddie. It's because he understands something that the whole Bible uniform, uniformly teaches that work is not just a burden, it is actually a blessing. Well, remember back to the very beginning of the Bible. The first worker in the whole Bible is who? It's God. And six days he makes the world and everything in it and everything around it, and on the seventh day he rests, giving us both a pattern for work and the balance of rest. And then when he makes man and woman, Adam and Eve, he makes them in his image, and what do they do? They get put to work. They are caretakers of his garden. They are naming animals. They are his servants. 
Now, to be sure, in Genesis 3, there's a big, big turn in that story. After Adam and Eve disobey because of their sin, God curses humanity. And part of that curse is to curse their labors. No longer will work be easy. No longer will it be a great delight. Instead, there will be a futility to their work. And yet, there's still blessing there. The ground will produce fruit. It just will take a lot more work. That's the message of the Bible from that point forward. Examples of people who, yes, work really hard, sometimes through great adversity to survive, to produce to become prosperous, and ultimately to serve God. Paul himself must have learned this from Jesus. Jesus was a man with a trade, a carpenter. Work is God's idea, and it is for our good. I, I heard a pastor say once that men do not do well without work because men are like pickup trucks. They drive straighter with a load in the back. Sometimes the best thing someone can do for their life, for all their other deficiencies, is just to find some humble, hard work to occupy their time, to build their confidence, and yes, even to give them a sense of dignity. Realize also as Christians, we have a special obligation to this because we're ambassadors of a time to come. Uh, we are, in a sense, a preview of what the new heavens and the new earth will be like when the curse on work will be reversed. And on that day, we will, yes, not just sit around on clouds, we will work for God and produce and be prosperous in a way that is impossible in this world. But as we do work in this world, we are to reflect that reality of the world to come. So, we are to work. Humbly, honestly, and for the honor of the God that we serve. Now, all this talk about work. If you're not a Christian, I don't want you to misunderstand what Christians believe. Many religions teach that God wants you to work hard in order to be right with him. That there are a certain set of things you need to do. Maybe it's a creed you need to live well enough by or a set of rituals you need to do well enough, but if you work hard enough and are determined enough, you will one day experience the divine. But it's a mistake to think that that's what Christianity teaches. Even a sermon about work comes at this from a completely different angle. The Bible teaches us that there's nothing that we could ever do to earn or work our way into God's good graces. That in fact, it required a work of God that none of us could ever accomplish for that to happen. God sent his son Jesus into the world to work, to live the perfect life. He did that, and even being willing to give up his life on a cross to substitute for all our failures to live up to God's standards. Jesus accomplished everything that was needed by providing a sacrifice for sins, and yes, giving us the promise of life beyond the grave in eternal life, to be resurrected with him in the life to come. That means we can never earn our way into right standing with God. That's only possible when you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. That's a gift that you receive by faith. So if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, we're going to be talking a lot about work. 
But please understand that the Christian faith starts with a gift you receive from God. And as a response, well, you put that faith to work to honor him. Now, it can be a, a difficult thing for people to come to grips with that working in a humble, honest way might be something that God is calling them to, especially if they have that idea of idealism in their hearts, um, especially younger Christians. I know you have probably been told to chase your dreams your whole life, and I don't want to discourage you from do, taking bold steps or doing things that are risky. But I do want you to realize that there is an entirely different worldview about work that is influencing you, whether you realize it or not. It could be, you could be perfectly faithful as a Christian, as a shoe repairman, as a mechanic, as a garbage collector, as, yes, a janitor in the Frito-Lay factory. What matters is that we work unto the Lord, that we work to honor him whatever station that's in. And you may have preferences and gifts that make you a better fit for some jobs than the others. It takes wisdom to know what opportunities to pursue and when to just take an opportunity in front of you. But never buy into the idea that there is some hidden mystical purpose that you must unlock through effort and never letting anyone say no to you. A, a very helpful, handy framework one of our elders, Brian Landis, introduced me to is this. It's the ABCs of work. It's first and foremost, you should want a job, any job. As long as it's honest, humble work, it will honor the Lord. Secondly, you should look for a better job. One that pays more, one that's closer to where you live, one that's closer to the career you want to get into. And then once you have a better job, only then do you start pursuing a career. It's very important for us to see work from the Bible's point of view and, and not from the world's. And there'll be a lot more about that to come. But we have a question that we need to ask. What happens when even though someone is commanded, told that this is what the Bible teaches, what happens when they fail to live up to that standard? Let's the next two points show us. How can we help other people to work? Well, verses 7 through 9, the example to emulate of humble, hard work. Read verse 7 with me. Verses 7 and 8. For you, you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. The Apostle Paul was a master teacher and a very purposeful church planter. He had a very distinct church planting strategy and it tied into his discipleship in the area of work. Paul refused to take money from churches he was planting. In this passage, that is what that idea, we took no one's bread. While he was planting the Thessalonian church, he refused to be paid even for basic life necessities. It turns out that's a larger pattern. If you look through Acts 18, when he's in Corinth, or if you read 1 Corinthians 9, where he talks about his intentionality with the Corinthians, Paul understands that gospel workers, preachers, they deserve to be supported for their work. And yet, 
while a church is getting its legs under it, he will not tie up a heavy burden on it. Instead, he works another job. He is a tent maker, a leather worker. He goes out in the workplace and does humble, hard work so the church doesn't have to pay him. Now again, realize Paul knows this is not supposed to be the case forever. This is while churches are maturing, and eventually, once they are mature, like the letter to the Philippians, he is happy to receive the uh, support from those churches. Now that's a huge contrast to the way the teachers in the Greek and Roman world otherwise would have uh, treated those who were taught. The expectation was the more money you could charge, the more worthwhile you were to listen to. So for Paul to refuse payment was in essence to send the message, the gospel can't be bought. He wouldn't tie up a heavy burden on them, but he had another purpose also. See that beginning of verse 7 and the end of verse 9, another one of those top and tails. It is to provide a pattern for their discipleship. Look at the beginning of verse 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. And then look at verse 9. It was not because we did not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Paul wanted to show them the Christian life is one of humble, hard, God-honoring work. So watch me. Watch the way I live and learn how to live like a Christian. Do you know that so much of the Christian life is something that is caught and not just taught? Sermons like this one are useful and necessary. So are Bible classes and books and courses. All of it is helpful. And yet so much of the Christian life is absorbed by watching another mature Christian do something. And then you just kind of pick it up and do it yourself. Uh, I remember... A while back, I had been discipling someone who came to Christ, and uh, he didn't have any, any believers in his family, so he didn't have many examples to look to. And after a few months of him coming with me, doing pretty much everything, I asked him to pray when there was a group of us about to eat. And he started praying, and I was like, I recognize some of those phrases. I even recognize the kind of cadence, the speed to how he prays and the emphasis he puts. And I opened my eyes and like, is he pulling my, is he yanking my chain? Is he making fun of me here? But it turned out I had made a little Tommy clone in the way I <laughs> prayed. And I bet if you thought about your Christian life, you could go through anything you do well in the Christian life. Chances are there's someone you looked up to that you've patterned your faith after. Uh, Maybe it was someone that taught you how to do your quiet time. Or someone that showed you for the first time how a Christian parent disciplines their kids. Or someone who taught you how to manage your money to glorify God. So much of the Christian life is caught, not taught. And what we see in this passage is part of our discipleship needs to include, yes, humble, hard, God-honoring work. The way we work our jobs is meant to be part of how we multiply Christians in this world. So I need to ask, what sort of example are you setting with the way you work? Christian parents, when you talk to your kids about your job, do they hear grumbling 
Do they hear dissatisfaction? Do they hear that Disney, I wish I was doing something else? Idealism? Or do, you hear that, do they hear that work is, yes, a burden, but it is ultimately a blessing, and you are so grateful to God that you get to work? Students, one of the best pieces of advice you can get if you're in college or high school is find someone with a good Christian work ethic that has a good work-life balance, that understands well how this integrates into the Christian life, and ask as many questions as you can. Try and soak up how a Christian uses their job well. How do you use your job to share Jesus with your coworkers? How do you use your job to balance that with your commitments at church and with your family? Ask a good Christian example. We have plenty of them in our church. Find a good Christian example because you will pattern your thoughts of work after someone. Only question is whether that will be a good example or a poor one. Now, let's also realize that there are times where we need to be very intentional in this area of discipleship. I I was so encouraged this week uh, to hear from one of our members, Scott Whiting, who is involved with a ministry trying to disciple people that are on their way out from jail back into society and help them live faithfully as Christians. It's it's called uh, Jobs for Life. And one of the big lessons that they work really hard at, because it's one of the things that leads to the most success, is helping people to see that work is not a burden, but a blessing. So thankful for members of our church that do that sort of discipleship. And let's realize we all need to be ready, should someone to take a look at our lives, to have a life that's worth imitating, and how you honor Jesus in this part of your discipleship. All right, but there's one more level of intensity left. It's one thing to imitate or to give a good example, but how do we help when someone is frankly just flat out unwilling to work? What do you do when someone is both rebellious and idle simultaneously? That that brings us to the third and final principle. The warning We must be ready to give to produce humble, hard work. I told you that there was a a top and tail or bookends to the passage, verse 6 and verse 14. I just want to read them back to back so you can hear it. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition you receive from us. Now, here verse 14. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. The top of the tail clue you in, what the main point is here, there is a a type of exclusion that must occur for someone who persists in their idleness. Now, at the very outset here that we run into an issue because as soon as we say that, your mind probably goes to something like the Amish as they shun people that don't live up to their standards. Someone doesn't have a job, so you, you write them off. You delete them from their phone. You don't make eye contact. You are done with them. But that's not what Paul's talking about. What he is referring to is a type of discipleship. It is discipline in discipleship. It is accountability that we lovingly bring to each other when we find that we are out of step with the Christian life. 
you could see that this is not a cold cutting people off. A couple ways. First in, first in verse 13, he says, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. That's almost certainly aimed at the wealthy members of the congregation that have been taken advantage of by this group of people that were unwilling to work. Whatever he is saying, Paul wants to make sure that they hear this is not an excuse to avoid the call to extravagant grace, to loving people through hard times, to providing help when people are in crisis. Whatever this is, this is not that. There, there are still good works for us to do as disciples of Jesus, including loving one another with tangible gifts of uh, support. Uh, I mean, this is the same Paul who will instruct other churches to take up an offering for famine relief and another church to have a role where widows are regularly supported because they are unable to work due to their station in society. So whatever this is, this is not just idleness. Uh, it is not just a blanket call for us to avoid anyone who doesn't have a job. Uh, it's helpful to realize there's a distinction between someone who will not work and someone who is unable to work. Someone who's unwilling to work and someone who are, is unable to work are two very different people. Sometimes people get sick. They have a disability. They have something physical that's preventing them from supporting themselves. And in moments like that, Christians need to be the most compassionate of all. Uh, other times it's due to changing seasons of life. Uh, we live in a society where retirement is a very common thing. You, at a certain point in life, you start slowing down your pace. And very often that doesn't fit very well with whatever career you were in. And so people have a season of retirement. Now, retirement is not synonymous with idleness. It's possible, though, to be idle in retirement. Uh, Christians need to think very carefully about how their newfound freedom of not having a day job is to be stewarded. And I'm thankful for many great examples in our church of retired brothers and sisters who use the extra hours the Lord has given you to build up the church and do good works. Uh, realize also that there are times where there are strange circumstances that prevent people from being able to support themselves. When I got out of college, it was a very different environment than when I went in. Uh, when I went in, Technology was on the way up, and I was going in to become a, a, a tech guy, uh, to learn programming. Uh, when I was on my way in, 10 out of 10 students got jobs straight out of college from that program. By the time I graduated, that bubble had burst, and instead of 10 out of 10, it was 1 out of 10. Now, I was fortunate to be one of the few that got a job, but I did not think that the nine other classmates failed to get a job because they were lazy or idle. It was, the circumstances had just changed. Sometimes that happens. And, and frankly, we're living in a moment where a lot of people's careers and professions have been upended due to the pandemic and so many of the economic consequences of it. So there is a distinction to be drawn between those who are unwilling to work and those who are unable. But yet, when they are unwilling to work, Notice there, we can't avoid the reality of what we're called to do. We are to avoid, we already read, that, look at verse 15. We are also to warn. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. 
I know once we start talking about accountability and discipline, that some people start going into fight or flight mode. There are plenty of examples of churches that have abused church discipline and have bruised and bloodied spiritually many believers as a result. And yet it's inescapable here. There is a measure of accountability and even exclusion that we are to have when someone gives in to persistently and unrepentantly the sin of idleness. Now, it is helpful that verse 15 makes clear there's a tone to that. It, you warn them as a brother. My brother and I disagree about plenty of things. No matter how sharp that disagreement, at the end of the day, we know it is a love that is uh, leading us to say those words. So too, with the discipline in our discipleship that Paul is describing here, that we come alongside those who are idle and that we warn them uh, first very gently and then increasingly so, so they understand the peril to their own souls. It's a very similar thought to Matthew 18, where Jesus is describing that church discipline process. Matthew 18, 17 says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Three appeals, first one-to-one, then multiple-to-one, and then the entire church. And then at the end of it, a type of exclusion. Treat him like a tax collector and a Gentile. Now, again, that does not mean you stop acknowledging their existence or even stop reaching out or even stop uh, having a uh, relationship with them. None of us would be Christians if tax collectors and Gentiles never came to Christ. But thank God that they do. So this is clearly telling us that someone who is idle in their faith is to be regarded as a non-Christian. That we were to invite them to church that we are to point out how they are out of step with what God wants for their life, and that we are to call them to repentance. We just uh, welcomed in members this morning. Praise God for that reality. Um, love the fact that we regularly get to hear testimonies of how people found our church and how they came to Christ. And, and I love that mutual accountability that's built into our membership covenant. Each of us need the help of our brothers and sisters, if we are to live faithfully and fruitfully in a way that would honor our Lord Jesus. I hope you want that accountability. I hope you never have to use it, but at the same time, I, I hope you desire it. Should you ever to be deceived by the enemy or the deceitfulness of sin, that someone would love you enough to come and warn you as a brother or sister. It's vital that Christians reflect the kingdom that they belong to, and the king that they serve. And that means they need to be a people that are marked by humble, hard, God-honoring work. Now, there is a, a question of what do you do with helping hurting people outside the Christian community? As we think about our neighbors here in Castleton and more generally in the United States, it's a difficult question. We certainly don't want to encourage people to be idle, and yet we also want to provide relief when people are knocked off their feet and uh, find hardship. Uh, I just want to recommend a book to you if you would like uh, some help thinking that through. You can buy it at the bookstall. It's called When Helping Hurts. Um, I've been using uh, some of the material from these authors, a similar book, 
uh, to help train our benevolence team as we think about how the Lord might lead our church to do just that sort of work when people that are hurting financially come and ask us for help. It's a complicated topic. We certainly want to acknowledge and do everything we can to encourage the dignity of work and people to be fruitful and to uh, be, live uh, prosperous, flourishing lives. And, and yet there are many complexities that we need to be very careful about. I invite you to pick up that book if you're interested. Well, I hope by now you're convinced that we need to be a people that give ourselves to humble, hard, God-honoring work. That when we do so, we give people a little glimpse of the kingdom of God and, yes, even our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to come back to that story at the beginning of Richard Montaigne's. It absolutely is a hallmark rags-to-riches story, but there's one more layer to it. Turns out that it's not just a story of determination and overcoming adversity. It's also a story of faith at work. After he immigrated to the United States and got that job in the Frito-Lay factory, Richard Montañez was witnessed to by some of his coworkers. They kept on telling him about Jesus and inviting him to come to church. And little by little, his heart was won over, and he himself became a Christian. These are his own words. He says, I never felt like I belonged. I always felt like I was an outsider, like a second-class citizen. Then someone started telling me about Jesus Christ. I wanted that so bad. We were never going to be picked for anything. Why would God take the time to deal with somebody like me? When nobody else would. Richard Montañez became a Christian and he worked hard. He was humbled, but ultimately he honored his Lord Jesus Christ in the way he worked. Brothers and sisters, I have no idea what the Lord might call you to do for your vocation and your job, but I know this you can honor your Lord Jesus Christ if you do your labor unto him. And when you do, well, you, you give us a foretaste of what heaven will look like and what our Lord Jesus is like. Let's pray.